Hey, this is Aaron. And this is Paul. And we are from the Retro Obscura podcast. And you're listening to the Super NES podcast, the SNES podcast, the SNES podcast, and whatever acronym you would like to butcher like I just did. <laughs> so, awesome. Keep listening to the SNES podcast. Welcome all of you for checking out this podcast. I also go by the name Soulblazer Online, and this is the first episode of a Super NES podcast. We're going to be talking about the game Soulblazer uh, in this episode. Uh, and I'm honored here today to have also with me as my co-host, uh, Chad. Hey guys, how are you? Uh, doing alright, so how's your day been so far? Oh man, like I said, I made an epic comic book score, so I'm, I'm talking about like Silver Rage and all that, so I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> you, know, you and I, like we're talking, sounds like you enjoy the system uh, just as much as I do. Oh yeah, definitely. It's when I was a kid, I had an NES, but I didn't, I mean, I liked it, but I don't think it became a priority until I got my hands on the, on the Super Nintendo, and then all of a sudden it was like, I could see what gaming was. And then I traded all that in for the PlayStation 1, and I liked it, but then I decided I liked the Super Nintendo more. So I, I guess it's become my happy medium, and it's probably my favorite system of all time. Yeah, I would say probably, probably say the system like is my uh, second favorite. The NES is probably still up there at number one, but the Super NES, the Super NES is like you know, right behind from me. 
I went over this in more detail like an initial episode, so I won't repeat myself too much right there, too right here. But um, I picked up Super NES when it was pretty new for Christmas, Christmas of '91. Uh, it was the first purchase I made, the first major purchase I made, like my own money. So uh, for that reason alone, uh, it, like it always had a very special reason, uh, like being in my heart because of just how much all the time and money that I put into that, that I put like to buying the system and the games for it after that point. So. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I got mine, uh, my, uh, my dad, it was actually just, there were no birthdays, there was no Christmas, there was nothing. We just came home from school, me and my brother, and, uh, I think my sister may have been too young, but we just kind of walked in, and my dad holds up this copy of a boxed Lion King, hmm. and, uh, it was for Super Nintendo, and my my first reaction was like, oh, these dumb adults, they don't know one thing from the other. So I was like, no, Dad, we have a Nintendo. We don't have a Super Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you don't? I could have sworn I saw one upstairs. <laughs> so then we scrambled upstairs. I mean, it was a mad dash to go up to our room. And there it was, this shiny gray super nintendo and i don't know if it was brand new i think it may have been a blockbuster thing mm -hmm. and um you know blockbuster was selling used consoles and that kind of thing at the time right but um we ended up with uh super mario world um um mario all-stars is it was that bundle and we ended up with earth defense force and lion king yeah, some pretty more unusual uh, uh, common games to the system there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. It was like, again, I think they were blockbuster purchases, but the Earth Defense Force, oh, my gosh, it turned out to be one of my favorite games of all time. Um, and then Lion King, it, now uh, Disney games are probably my favorite on the system. Uh, just because of how well they're done, the music and the gameplay and that kind of thing. Mm. And then Super Mario World, I promise, is probably still one of my favorite platformers. It was just masterfully done. Yeah, this was definitely a great game to have. It was an excellent game to pack into the system. Uh, to this day, Mario World, Super Mario World is probably, is probably, is probably, probably my favorite game in the, uh, like the Mario franchise. So um, it's definitely like a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it... Oh, it had such magic to it. The music was great. The gameplay was fantastic. It had just the right amount of difficulty. Mm. Of, like, um, when you died, it never really felt cheap. Right. Uh, it was always like, oh, I could have done that better. I knew what to do on that. And you could go back and, you know, you learn from your mistakes and that kind of thing. It kept you coming back. And they really knew what they were doing with that game. You could tell they really threw themselves into it to actually show what the system could do. Yes, indeed. You know, it was definitely a great game. To, you know, a great game to get the system off with. Um, 1992 really started to have some really great games coming off of the system uh, uh, the following year after the launch, uh, which is the time period that this game we're talking about tonight uh, falls into, actually. Um, but before we get into the game discussion, I do want to throw out a few thanks. Um, these following, these following people and fellow podcasters have been very, 
very instrumental in helping get this, helping get this podcast off the ground. Uh, I, I, I definitely could not have done this without the help and support. Uh, I want to specifically thank uh, Willie um, of the Click Vision Podcast and, and their KUSA YouTube channel for making up the great logo that I that, that I use for this podcast on the Facebook page and for being one of my most adamant uh, supporters um, and, and fans and fans of the podcast. I want to thank uh, uh, Paul, uh, uh, otherwise known as Nermix, uh, Chevy Televisionaries, who created the amazing intro uh, music that you heard at the beginning of the podcast and also the out-out music that you're going to hear at the end. Uh, did an excellent job of that. I want to thank uh, Ferg from the Atari 2200 Game by Game podcast for being, uh, for being a very added supporter for helping me with a couple of Audacity issues and also for giving some very kind thoughts and feedback uh, in the last couple of episodes of this podcast. Then I want to thank uh, Aaron of the Retro Obscura podcast uh, for providing the first bumper that you heard at the beginning of the podcast. I didn't even ask him for it. Um, I, I went up a couple days ago on Facebook and asked him if it was okay if I made up a, made up a couple bumpers for a show. And he's like, yeah, well, we actually made up to one of you guys. Uh, here you go. So he did it without me even asking for it. So it's a very, very kind thing for him to do. So uh, I really want to thank all of them uh, very much, like the support uh, that they showed me f- to help me this podcast like, off the ground. So um, let's talk about Soul Blazer. Um, as some of you may know, the, this is the game name that I use uh, like online for most of my online uh, personas. And uh, I don't even really know why I want to take the name. I guess just back in 1998 when I first got online in a serious basis and I was trying to think about a name to like a name to use for online, uh, even at that early point there were still a lot of names that had already been taken. So I remember sitting there trying to think about something that sounds cool and kind of uh, amazing sounding to use for like an online name. And so Blazer just came to mind. I, but, you know, I always really you know, love the name of the game, just kind of the image conjures up. Um, just like, you know, somebody somebody going around blazing souls and just kind of being like a warrior, like of that virtue and that kind of stuff. So um, I really have always loved the name, but even more than that, um, I probably love the name, but even more than I enjoy the game. So when I wanted to get the podcast going, it just seemed natural to take this as the first game to cover, uh, like a neutral podcast. Um, I thought it was a fantastic name. Um, <laughs> I thought it was pretty apt. And all of a sudden, I, I, I saw it uh, in the early 2000s. Like I said, I really didn't pay much attention to things that were Square or Enix mm-hmm. just because of the Final Fantasy thing. At the time, I wasn't too fond of the turn-based strategy games. Right. And there wasn't anything in the way of YouTube at the time to do research. All you could really do is ask friends if they had heard of it, look at stills in um, in magazines if you could ever find any, or anything like that. So um, it was it was pretty cheap in EB Games, and I picked it up, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Yeah, this was a game that I remember uh, buying and playing back in the day when it was new. Uh, I don't remember how I heard about it. I think like Nintendo Power probably covered it or something else like that. Yeah. So, um, so uh, let's go into a little bit of a discussion about the actual background of the game itself and some history about it. Soul Blazer was developed by Quintet, which is a very prolific company in Japan for RPGs during the 90s. Uh, their first game was Legacy of the Wizard for, uh, for the NES. Uh, and like the last game uh, was a kind of forgettable RPG called Orphan Scission of Sorcery of the PS2. Uh, but during the 90s, they produced many, many uh, role-playing games, most of which were published by Enix. 
Um, Enix, of course, is best known for the Dragon Warrior series. They have since merged with Square Enix. So, um, Soul Blazer was released in January of 1992 in Japan. It got released in the U.S. in November of 1992 and finally got released in Europe in January of 1994. Uh, for some reason, there was a name change uh, when the game came over to the West. The game was known as Soul Blader, uh, B-L-A-D-E-R in Japan, for the Soul Blazer, uh, like in the, in the West. I'm not sure why the I'm not sure why the name changed. Maybe maybe Blader had already been taken. Maybe they thought they sounded cooler. But um, if you're ever looking for the Japanese version of the game, uh, Soul Blader, that's what it's called for. Soul Blazer is the first of a loose trilogy of games uh, that came out with the Super NES. I say loose uh, for the trilogy in the same vein that the Final Fantasy series. It looks like it's a loose series of games, and that some places, items, people, etc., are carried over like from game to game. Um, the, the Soul Blazer trilogy is not a direct sequel to one another, but there are things that carry over uh, between the three games that they all have in common. The, the Soul Blazer being the first game in the series, with Illusion of Gaia being the second, and then the series finishing up. Chad, maybe you can help me play the pronouncing of this. Terranigma? Terranigma, okay, alright. Yeah! Uh, okay. So, sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this last game never came out in the U.S. because Enix had already because Enix had shut down the U.S. operations by the time that game came out. It was released in Europe, however, by Nintendo, and there is a retro part and a uh, and a fan translated ROM version of the game available for play of that game. So I do actually own a repro cart of that. I have that game. I've you can get them, and, and I'm telling you, if you get them, well, if you get them well done, it's a very well done game, and it's mm. it's very fun. Uh, it's along the same lines, but um, please, if you ever get the chance, check it out. It's maybe. 30 40 bucks for the cart. So, yeah, um, one thing is noticeable, like, right away with the game, if the Soul Blazer definitely, uh, Soul Blazer followed, followed Enix's uh, earlier and much more popular game, Act Riser. Uh, the two games also have a lot in common, like, even though Act Riser is not considered to be part of the series uh, that Soul Blazer's in. Uh, there are definitely a lot of things that Soul Blazer carries over, uh, like, in that previous game. This game was not very popular when it came out for one reason like or another. Uh, most of the reviews I could find of the game from back in the day spoke very highly of it, but maybe because of the kind of game it was, or maybe because the Inks was a smaller company, um, the game did not sell very well. Only 70,000 copies were sold in North America, and only 25,000 sold in Europe, according to Quintet's internal records. Uh, compare that to the fact that a popular game with Super NES in these days usually sold anywhere from a quarter million to a million copies. Um, and this game is kind of unusual to find today. If you want a copy, you're going to have to be prepared to pay for it. Uh, something we're going to touch on again later on in the podcast. Uh, let's get into the gameplay discussion. Um, Soul Blazer is an action RPG game, uh, very similar to the Zelda games in some ways. Uh, there's definitely some common similarities between them. Um, the, the plot is a pretty basic plot for RPGs, for like an existence basically. There's this empire, the Freelian Empire, that used to rule the world. But the king was a very greedy sort and wanted to get more money, wealth, or, or power for himself. So he he kidnapped uh, the, the most famous scientist in the world, Dr. Leo, and forced him to build a machine that would summon, um, you know, that would summon this uh, demon, evil god, I'm not sure what he is, uh, basically named Deftol, uh to come into existence thanks to the machine. And the king and Defto struck a deal where, they, where, where the king would get a, a gold coin for each life form that was captured. And slowly Defto captured all the, everybody in the world, including like in the end the king. 
and your character is it's never really quite clear exactly said who you are the, the game gives you the impression that you're a servant like the god the master of this world and he sends you down to the planet to restore the balance free the people and to defeat death toll so it's a pretty standard rpg plot to go to to start with but there are some twists that are thrown there are some plots that are thrown like to the game um as it goes on um, there's a couple of nice twists here and there toward the end, and the ending has a very nice surprise to it. Something I was not expecting to see at all back when I, you know, back when I first played and beat the game uh, when it was new. So it's definitely like a very like good game as far as the uh, being able to keep on your toes and being able to toss in a few surprises to you that you may not have been expecting, um, expecting with it. So there was a lot of depth to this game. Uh, the the combat itself was actually pretty smooth, hmm. and. Um, also, the uh, the story was just it was on a level that was just fantastic. You could tell that they actually thought this through, that they that the writers actually threw themselves into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, yeah. So the game consists of six stages. Um, like each stage consists of a town area, and there's also a dungeon area. Um, if you, like, you have the ability to move between stages, like as you go on, you know, like through the game. You get, at the start of the game, uh, the ability to be able to uh, use a sword and also equip armor. You have a weapon and armor, and you get better swords and better armor as the game goes on. Uh, you also gain the ability to cast magic early in the game by freeing a magician. And this is one of the most annoying parts to me in the game. One of the, you know, one of the things I really didn't like about it very much. Uh, for some reason, the person they chose to have a magician reflect it as a magic ball that circles you the entire game. You know, this ball just circling around and around and around. It's like, you know, I don't, don't know why they did it that way. I mean, I mean, like, most games, most games just get the ability to just cast magic, like, from hands or whatever, but instead they have this, like, this ball following you around the whole game. I mean, um, I could see why they did it for certain kinds of magic. Maybe they had a problem because, like, uh, Rotator. Rotator yes, that... is one of those that had to have the ball. I mean, I, I couldn't see them trying to do a, uh, a homing kind of thing with any other. But it does take some getting used to because right. the fire spell, it's your very first spell. Mm -hmm. yep. And it's very straightforward. But it comes from the ball. And whatever your direction is facing... That's where the fire is going to come from, but it's whatever position the ball is in. Like if yes. the yeah. fire is in your your all the way on your right, it's going to come from your right. So you actually have to kind of lead the target, and you actually have to wait for the ball to be in position and the enemy and the um I don't know the hit area. You have to be right on the enemy. You can't just graze the enemy. It has to actually go right through the middle. Yes, so yeah. other magic stuff like that, um, like the uh, the magic arrow, the fire magic, I don't know. You, It does take some getting used to. It took me some getting used to to actually get that timing. Now, once I did, it was actually kind of fluid. I mean, I did it without thinking about it. I did still watch the ball what position it was in and that kind of thing but it kind of got to the point where i i don't know it it was it it gets a little bit smoother as you go on the more you use the magic yes got this excellent point because all magic spells in the game actually flash come from the ball and the positioning of the ball is more important to some spells than others um so 
it does have that strategic element to it where you have to position the ball in the right spot to be able to cast your spell. Um, but the magic, as you alluded to, is a very important part of the game because there are certain enemies that you either will be able to defeat much easier with magic or you have these magic to be able to defeat. Uh, there are certain enemies that are vulnerable to only one magic spell. So knowing which spell to use and correctly position the ball to be able to use the spell to defeat the enemy and so on like, is very important. So because at its game... Because at the core of the game, half the game is a dungeon crawl aspect where you go into the stage and you have to clear a whole bunch of monster layers. And the monsters are generated one at a time out of these layers. Uh, and you have to defeat all the enemies coming out of that layer to be able to seal the layer. Once you, once you defeat all the enemies that that particular layer generated, uh, like it'll change color, like, like this flashing green circle spot. And then you step onto the layer, and that closes the layer. And depending upon what that particular layer does, it triggers something to happen. And something can be almost anything. That the, uh, closing the layer can cause an effect for you in the dungeon, where it causes an, a passage to open up, your treasure chest to appear, or some other beneficial effect, or it may free a life form. Then the game flashes back to the town real quick to show you which creature that that, 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 that layer was holding captive, shows you what it was that you freed. When I say life form, I'm saying life form because not because not everything you free in the game is a person. A lot of things you free in the game could be dolphins or, or, or plants or vines. Technically living things, but not really people in the people is the traditional RPG sense. So it's kind of unusual and kind of a nice touch, I think, that the fact that they actually that the game designers incorporated this wider scale of what they meant by a life, uh, you know, life form that that you free like once in the game's dungeons. Yes, and it's also very critical that you defeat all the enemies in one spot. They they actually straight up encourage you to defeat the, all the enemies, which is something not a lot of games did at the time. You actually have to clear all the layers like to be able to see in the dungeon. You actually mm -hmm. have to do that. Yes. And a lot of the townspeople are very critical to defeating the game because they give you certain items. Some of them give you kind of useless hints like, oh, I knew that already. But a lot of them give you very useful items that become quite critical later on. Yes, indeed. Um, and a large part of the game uh, consists of the element of having to backtrack to go, to go back to the town to be able to proceed. And, and in most ages, you'll go to the dungeon, you'll clear out some layers, you'll, you'll trigger something critical back to the town, a person to talk to or whatever. You go back to the town, you talk to that person uh, who gives you an item or some passageway for you or something else like that. Then you go back to the dungeon then you go back in deeper this time, clear out some more layers, go back to town again, uh, rinse and repeat. So a large part of the game has you going back and forth, except from the town and the dungeon. And it can be a little bit annoying having to backtrack sometimes, you know, but it's also fun, I think. The game requires you to go back to town on a regular basis, which I think is a nice touch to put in the game, and really adds in the RPG aspect like, to the game with it. It does, um, really, and it does really add a very big exploration kind of thing to it because you have to talk to everyone yes indeed, um, if yeah. you've never played the game you have to talk to everyone or you're going to miss something right so the actual combat in the dungeon i think handles like very well your character uses i'm assuming you're using a bastard sword because he had the graphic never changes he always has, he always has both hands on like in a sword so it looks like a two-handed sword that you're using it's a pretty good arc you have the sword. Most of your enemies take several hits to be able to defeat. And there are some areas where, when I was playing the game, I remember 
I remember using my magic a lot of times to clear away layers to defeat all the monsters for areas I couldn't even get to yet. Just because of my, I was so anal with wanting to clear the screen of enemies before I proceeded that I often, <laughs> you know, I'd often would just sit there and, and use magic to clear away the monsters I couldn't reach, and then go on through the game. And then about half an hour later, I finally get the, I finally get to that area, and it's like, and it's like, oh, two, three, four layers just sitting there waiting to be cleared. Uh, <laughs> That's so, the Andy S mentality. Yeah, you can't wait. To, you, you've got to kill everything on the screen. Well, luckily, luckily, like I said, most enemies don't regenerate. There are a few. But most of the enemies you see you fight in the game are generated by their layers, and the layers have a fixed number of enemies come from it. Uh, you also luckily usually face at most two layers coming at you with their monsters at the same time, so you never really feel overwhelmed. The game, the game's difficulty, I think, does a very good job of ramping up um, pace of your character. The game is a pretty good difficulty level. It's not too easy. It's not too hard. It's really kind of a very well-paced, balanced. Uh, game very good for beginner RPG or I think uh, who's trying to get his or her feet wet in the, like in the genre. The game does such a good job of combining those action hack and slash elements with the going back to town talking to people RPG aspects. I think the regenerating enemies are there for your benefit. One, you have to level up. There is a leveling system in here. And it does it, it is to your benefit that you do that. And then because Certain weapons can't be well can't be wielded until you're a certain level. Like you can actually hold the weapon, but he won't swing it. And then if you die at any point that you die, you lose your gems, which that's where your magic is based. Your magic spins gems. So if you die, you have to go back and recollect those gems be able to use that magic right yeah and those regenerating enemies they help you out quite a bit because i found myself um i found myself spamming them so i could get that last 10 points to level up (laughs) (laughs) yes um now chad maybe you know something about this that i didn't but my memories and recollection of this and and like all the research i could find any research i did on the game trying to find out the answer to this as opposed to as opposed to many other kinds of rpgs as far as I can determine, leveling up in this game, your level only determines the number of hit points you have by any ability to use certain certain weapons. Uh, your offensive power is determined by your sword. Your defensive power is determined by your armor. There are no stats per se in the game, but there are many RPGs. The main benefit you get from going up levels is to increase your hit points. You'll see your bar at the top of the screen uh, slowly go up, uh, go, go up in value as you increase in levels. That is true, but um, yeah, it only increases hit point, but at the same time, you have to have that level again to raise yourself enough to use those certain swords or use that certain armor. So it's not very critical that you have a lot of the armor. There are certain pieces of armor that you need to get through certain parts of the level, but it's not critical. Right. Um, the ice armor is not critical. Right. You can get past that whole level without it. Right, yeah. So, yeah, um, I think the actual game design, like I said, works very well, like the most part. You do gain the ability to be able to, to, be able to warp to different areas uh, of a dungeon as you go through the, as you go through the, the area. You're, you're not always forced to have to start back at the, by the beginning. 
Uh, as you go through the dungeon, there are certain items that will heal you and also give you the option to go back to the Magic Temple uh, to allow you to see your progress. You know, make it easy to, to go back in town and talk to people like I alluded, alluded on before. Your character kind of moves a little bit stiffly, like I said, but he does have a pretty good arc range, like the sword. You, you can swing pretty rapidly. The controls of the game are very easy to pick up. One helpful hint I'll give you for anybody out there playing the game for the first time, if you hold the L and R buttons at the same time, you will draw the gems toward you automatically without you without having to go over there and pick them up one by one. So when you finish clearing an area and there's like five, six, seven gems around you, just hold down those buttons. Just like all the gems would magically attract it to you. It's like drawing it to you that way. I also found that really useful um, as a, another way of combat, so you don't actually have to hack and slash. I found it very useful during the first boss. Hint, hint, guys. Uh, you can actually push the buttons and use your uh, and use your sword button, and it will hold the sword out in front of you, and you can actually kind of strafe back and forth. It doesn't do quite as much damage, but it is very useful in certain fights. Yes, indeed. I, I, you're excellent point there. The, the boss fights, since you just mentioned it, the boss fights for the game are very challenging. Uh, the monsters, the monsters are very difficult. You will be tested, and you probably, you probably will die a couple of times to figure the pattern uh, by being the bosses. All the bosses are very beatable. They have power to them, but they have some nasty attacks. Uh, and it you know, definitely take a while to find out how to move, how to attack, what works best against it, that kind of stuff. So very challenging boss fights. But they're not very. It's not frustrating. I mean, it's. The boss fights, you can learn from them. Yes, definitely. Like, uh, oh, he went that way, so I know to go this way. Oh, I almost had him that time. Maybe I could beat him this time. Again, and then a lot of it is very strategically placed. You could tell, like, the R&D team, they, were ab they had to be absolutely wonderful. Right, yep. So um, the, graphics, the graphics of the game are very good. You know, they're, very, you know, they're very bright, large, colorful objects. You know, very good use of Super NES's range of colors, I think. There are a couple of, well, I wouldn't call it cutscenes, uh, like animations of the game that are very bright and vivid. A lot of the graphical palettes and the overall game engine, as I mentioned, as I mentioned upon before, there's a lot of the game that they, a lot of the game that lifted directly from Actraiser. Uh, the, 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 the game engine, the game engine feels like a modified engine of the one they used in Actraiser. Some of the graphics are the same. A lot of the sound effects are the same. They're carried over directly. They're carried over directly from Actraiser, but the graphics are the graphics are not quite as good as, as uh, quite as good as Actraiser's. But they are very bright and vivid and colorful. There's, there's no problem recognizing. Okay, that's a plant. That's a tree, etc., etc. Uh, so the graphics are very detailed. They get the job done. They're not quite as great as some later Super NES games for sure, but for 1992 standards, uh, the graphics of the game are very good. I could see my 12-year-old self saying, oh my gosh, this game is beautiful. The water is moving, <laughs> you know? <laughs> my 16-year-old yeah, self said that also when I first played the game back in the day. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was absolutely, I thought the game was absolutely beautiful in the early 2000s, like I said. But I was also coming off of PlayStation 1 and that kind of thing. It yes. kind of, um... It kind of, I don't know, when you're coming off a game that had footprints like, oh, wow, footprints in the snow, that's incredible. To, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, like waves on the screen and it, and it, and it kind of gives the impression the water is moving. But I feel like if my 12-year-old self had picked this up back in 1992, that I would have absolutely been blown away just by the graphics itself. 
Yes, definitely. The music in the game is very, very good. It's definitely an excellent soundtrack. You know, the guy who composed it, I'm not going to try to butcher his name, was a very prolific uh, sound designer uh, in Japan who scored a number of other Japanese games, you know, games anime. Uh, it's an excellent, it's an excellent soundtrack. It's it's not as good as Actorizer, but that's a very high bar to set because I, because I think Actorizer had the best, had one of the best soundtracks in the system, like in all video games, uh, bar none. But the soundtrack for Soul Blazer is very good. It's very detailed. Um, it's very. It's very happy music, I think, compared to many other you know, RPGs. There's, there's certainly a sense of there's there's a sense of fighting and combat, but also a sense of determinism and you know upbeatness to the music as you, as you go through the game. The town music stays the same throughout the game. It, you know, it's very peppy, uh, upbeat. The the, uh, the the music when you're in the master's temple is very uh, choral sounding, sort of like deep piano organ sound effects and that kind of stuff. Uh, the soundtrack really fits the game. It's definitely an excellent, an excellent addition to the game because a game like this needs to have good music to help keep you entertained as you slog your way through the dungeons. Um, so, like the soundtrack, they really deliver like the game. I thought the soundtrack was incredible. Um, there are certain places in the game that the soundtrack is better than because I mean, Southerda. If you remember the um, Greenwood, the Saint L. Yes, okay. Uh, you, you go into the first uh, area, and I remember going into South Erda and the music there just blowing me away. Hmm. And then I went into the Fire Shrine in Greenwood, and the music there, I mean, every time you go into one of the enemy held games with the, and everything, oh, the music is incredible. It actually puts you in the mood to kind of just stay in there, you know? It yes, does definitely. loot, but you don't really notice it. Right. Yeah, you know, the overall game design was very, very good, I think. Uh, there's, you know, there's some very good variety of the stages. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the stages, the, 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 the game stages have some, have some environments that are kind of typical for RPGs. You have, your, you have your water level, you have your ice level, you have your forest level. But there are a couple of stages, stages in the game that are very unique. It definitely, you know, it definitely made me you know, raise my eyebrows back in the day when I first playing the game, saying, like, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, one of my favorite stages is the, is like the water stage, where you actually, we actually have to get a certain item to allow, you to, to allow you to breathe underwater. And your character has a bubble around him as you're going through the stage to kind of reflect the fact you're actually underwater and the, you're underwater and like the, you know, the bubble allows him to breathe. There's another stage that's like a shrunken town where like you're, you're like all the you know like all the buildings and hedges and everything look like they're made like Legos. Um, that you're going around the dungeon clearing out the clearing out the layers. Uh, very you know very creative creative game design like like some of the stages. And you could tell the imagination in certain areas. Uh, there was imagine there was uh, one town. The uh, the characters only lived a year, or like two years or something like that. And um, it was it was a space of being a kid, then you have kids, then you're a grandpa, and then you die. In certain um, in certain parts of the game, it's kind of grim in that way, but you also have the hope because it does kind of latch on to um, reincarnation or whatever. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, very typical Japanese themes. The Japanese really like to explore that kind of aspect of their game. So, I mean, you can tell it's definitely a Japanese game, but there are certain Western aspects to it, uh, the whole hack and slash uh, aspect, uh, you know, some of the characters and whatnot. So, uh, like, it's a mm. very good balance, very good, you know, very good overall like, game design. 
Yes, um, you could definitely tell where the uh, Secret of Mana thing came from. You could definitely tell where uh, Secret of Evermore came from. These were very well done games, and uh, you could tell that uh, they were onto something great. Definitely. So, uh, so as far as the overall game flow itself goes, uh, Chad, you know, you and I were talking about this, you, you know, a small bit like off camera before. I found the game to be pretty linear back when I was playing it. I mean, the game, you know, the game, you know, the game changes are designed to kind of channel you, channel you like in like one direction. There are certain areas in the dungeon where you have a choice of going left or right, for example. Um, so. Like you go left, clear out all the you clear out the layers there. Eventually, you go back and then go right. It's not so complicated that you need a map or anything. There are a couple areas where you get stuck and you're not really sure what to do, like how to proceed. Usually, in those areas, that's when you have to go back to town and talk to somebody because the chances chances are you freed somebody back in the town who will be able to give you a hint to proceed or to open up an area for you. Um, so, but as long as you keep a mental note in your head, I mean, it was the last time that you went to the town. Um, as long as you, as long as you just take the time to explore and go all around the dungeon, I find it to be like pretty, like pretty linear to be able to go through the dungeons and to be able to figure out how to, where to go and how to do it to proceed. But I know you were saying, I know you were saying in a couple, in a couple of stages, um, that you were having difficulty trying to figure out, you know, what you had to do to proceed to advance or that kind of stuff. Well, see, um, like I was saying, I got this in uh, early two thousands. And there was no YouTube at the time, and I had got this out of a EB Games game bin. Okay. And they were clearing things out, and they had just got this in, and it was sort of in a metal bin out in front of the store, and I saw the the name Soul Blazer, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's a cool name. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't remember I didn't remember seeing anything about it. And I just kind of picked it up because it was like, I don't know, five, ten bucks at the time. Y'all have to understand, this is before Super Nintendo and Nintendo blew up. I mean, you could get games super cheap at the time. It didn't matter what it was. I'm going to mention be mentioning that very, very shortly here. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, so I picked that up. So I had nothing to go on. So uh, I had no manual. <laughs> and you have to talk to the very right person like yes. i was saying earlier exploration is very encouraged here if you do not explore every nook and cranny you're probably not going to get very far in the game because you have to talk to that certain person to get that certain item to go through the game there is backtracking but you don't actually have to travel like all the way back from the dungeon and all the way back from town. There right, are yep. halfway points that are yes, very yep, yep. well strategically placed. Yeah. yeah, and when you say person, it's important to, it's important to us here to stress that, that you need to expand your mind a little bit and think about exactly what a person is because, as I said, the life forms that you're in the game are not, are not your typical people or animals you'd expect to talk to like an RPG. Uh, certain things, there's you know, certain creatures you have to free to talk to include things like birds, uh, plants, uh, vines. Uh, so you have to kind of remember you kind of remember that that person actually has a soul to them. Uh, going back to the game, you're going back, you're going back like the name of the game, Soul Blazer, and, and you can't ignore them like you do with many other games. You have to be many games because 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 in some stages you have to, you have to talk to that bird or that or that plant or that, or that vine to be able to proceed in the game. 
So, uh, but remembering, so, so, so we backtrack to town, talking to everybody again, again, even not sure if you talk to that person or not, or, or that object or not, uh, but it's a very important game tip. Yes, and you, you can't take anything for granted. Just because nothing was there at the time doesn't mean it's not there now. Exactly, um, and that, that new thing maybe just just thing just 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 thing you need to be able to, just a thing you need to be able to proceed in the game too. So, oh yeah, yeah, like um, you have to uh, collect these certain things to unlock this very pat. I mean, the most powerful magic spell in the game, and that thing over there that you think has no no way in the world to have anything to do with it and they have everything to do with it to get that certain item yes exactly yeah you cannot take anything for granted in this game everything around you has something to do with it so um yeah you have to know who to talk to and that kind of thing but it makes it all worth it. Um, it's very rewarding. Yes. To talk to everything. Uh, it's not just like some silly little item. No, there are certain items in this game that you will be like, oh my gosh, why didn't I have this before? This is incredible. And then you get <laughs> another item and then, I don't know, you, you kind of you gotta have this conflict about what to equip during... Uh, during the boss battles, like there will be a certain item that will double your uh, your hit points, or it'll double your defense, or it'll revive you if you die all the way. Yes, right yes. there in the middle of battle, and there is a lot of strategy to that. There is a lot of role playing to this game. Yes. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like it's a very deep game for the time period that it came out with. I think um, you you know the RPG aspect elevated above the normal hack and slash games that were out for the time period. Um, there's a very good walkthrough on YouTube, which I sort of want to link link to in the show notes, where somebody where somebody plays the entire game, like they clock into about six hours uh, to, to go from start to finish. I would estimate that the average gamer who's never played the game before will probably spend about eight to twelve hours going through the game. Um, you know, so it's not super long, but it's long enough to really give you a good sense of a challenge and achievement uh, that you're playing through the game. Yeah, and there is no shame in going to Game Facts in this game, in this game, y'all. <laughs> there is right. no shame in it, <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, I mean, you could just be missing like the critical person. You could have sworn you talked to them before, and you may have unlocked something, and it could. It could uh, change completely what they just said. Right. So now, uh, so now that we we're talking about the game like quite a bit, you're probably very eager to get your hands on it. Well, this is where the hard part comes in. Um, <laughs> as you know, as the collectors out there probably know, uh, Super NES games right now, unfortunately, are in a kind of an inflated bubble um, for various reasons. Probably because of the generation of gamers who play these games as kids, like who are like, you know, our ages, um, or, or getting back in the system or whatever. Game systems and con- game systems and games always go through cycles. 2600 games were expensive for a while, now they're kind of coming down in price. Um, you know, NES games are still quite high, etc., etc. Uh, Super NES games have been going through outrageous prices the last couple of years. I mean, really just like jaw-dropping figures on some like, uh, by, by some games. I mean, 
Um, Loose copies of Earthbound selling for 200 bucks is crazy considering how common and popular that that game was. So the good news is that Soul Blazer is a game that can be easily found. Uh, when I checked online, uh, like on eBay, I found 112 listings of the game that it sold, it sold recently. So the game can be found without too much difficulty, but if you want the actual card, you're gonna have to be prepared to open the checkbook. The average price for uh, the average price for a sold copy of the game on eBay, just the game itself, mind you, range anywhere from you know, range anywhere from thirty to seventy dollars. Uh, a complete CIB game can run you anywhere from eighty to a whopping three hundred thirty dollars. Um, and the pricing on Amazon was right about the same, you know, the same price range also. So if you've never played the game before and, and just want to check it out, I highly encourage, I highly encourage like emulation for it. Uh, the game runs very well like emulation. The controls are not that difficult. It, 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 you know, it sounds great. And save states, I'm just saying, you know, it's... <laughs> save states are very useful <laughs> in this game, guys. Yes. Yeah, 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 very useful. So if you want the game on eBay, you're going to have to be prepared to shout, to, to, to shout some money for it if you, if you want a complete box copy. Loose carts of the game can be found for a pretty decent price. Like I said, I found copies sold for cheap 30 bucks. As long as, you're, as long as you're going to be patient, keep your eyes open for it. But when I see a copy of the box itself, just the box, mind you, signed for 80 bucks, that's when no things are going out of control. Yeah. SNES games are at a premium. Um, like I said, early 2000s, you could have had a lot of these games for, uh, for still. Not anymore, y'all. But um, thankfully, there are collectors out there and that kind of thing that are more than willing to help you. Um, and if you are a collector yourself and you just want to check these out, you're just starting out, it doesn't hurt to have trade bait for these because trade will go much longer than money will. <laughs> just, yes, indeed. Just yep. throwing that out there. They will put a lot more value on trade than they will cash. So, you know, just make friends and you'll probably find one reasonably reasonably priced that's what that's how i got mine thank you nick demarco <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let me go into feedback here for a little bit i went um i made some posts on facebook like a super nes page uh uh you know a while back looking for some feedback and comments uh, comments like about the game uh because it was not super, super popular when it came out the have 70,000 copies um you know back when it first came out so, uh, be, so, so between the fact it was an uncommon game and this is a brand new podcast, I didn't get too much feedback on this, but I did get a, but I did get a couple people um, who weighed in with their thoughts. Michael Kelso from the very popular uh, Two Dudes and NES podcast, great podcast by the way, if you played the NES, you know, highly recommend it, um, commented that he had the game uh, also back in the day, like when he was a kid, and he you know, just recently found his copy, like no, like no toy box, and he was very happy to find it again. So, um, uh, so Aaron Hickman from Retro Obscura, who I already, who, who, who already mentioned the first part of the podcast, um, mentioned that he loved the line on the box, like making like death toll pay, uh, toll death. So, <laughs> uh, uh, the, the, the box art, the box art can leave a little bit to be desired, like I admit. The picture of the sword's cool, but it doesn't really tell you anything like about the actual game and the, the, the game and, you know, the, you know, comment on it. Um, you know, free the freelance, make death toll pay 
is kind of vague. Um, they definitely could have, you know, definitely could have plugged the game better, I thought. But um, Aaron commented that he thought it was an excellent game. He only has spent a few hours on it so far, but he's potentially uh, planning on going back. You know, going back and finishing up the game again. Um, here at some point soon. So, and uh, this is a game that this is a game that most people once they once they actually play do seem to enjoy. Uh, all the reviews and comments I found on the game when I was looking on game FAQs and Atari Age and uh, YouTube and that kind of stuff really commented like how much I enjoyed it. So uh, this is definitely a game that I this is definitely this is definitely the kind of game I want to feature in this podcast. Not only because, like I said, my online name is taken directly from it, but also because I, I also because I want to focus on this podcast with some of the more obscure. Uh, lesser-known, um, not as popular games for the system, and Soul Blues are definitely fit that criteria. It's an excellent game that that you know I'm happy to finally be shedding some shedding some time, sh- you know, shedding a spotlight on and giving the game its and giving the game the props that it so desperately deserves. Um, I'm going to read a couple of the uh, comments that were posted on the Retro Junkies page, if you don't mind. Go right ahead. All right. Uh, yeah, I, I'm also chad on the retro junkies just in case y'all don't know (laughs) but uh anyway i did post this up and i got a few comments so anyway here we go scott dyer says this and the sleeper sequel illusion of gaia were two of my many fave rpgs on the SNES. very excited for this podcast thomas larson says the music is absolutely awesome a couple of seconds, and the music was etched into my brain. In a good way, of course. And then, um, Adam Haney says, I only recently found out about this game and emulated it because it is a bit pricey. Echoing you, of course. And uh, I can definitely see the Enix style and similarities to Razor. I had a blast playing it. Justin Isman says, The Soul Blazer trilogy is one of my favorite series, Enix Quintet for the win. Joe Koppel says, this is a pretty good game, definitely one of my top 20s. Can't wait to add this to my podcast list. So, um, thanks guys for commenting. Yes, definitely. Um, so in summary, uh, you know, uh, Chad and I have already pretty much kind of tipped our hands uh, a big way as we think about the game. Um, but, you know, I... But you know, like you know, I really like it a, a lot. Uh, playing it again recently this week kind of reminded me like how great a game it is. Um, there are, you know, you know, like I said earlier, you know, there are a few flaws like the game um, having that, you know, the magic system. Like I said, it's kind of kind of having a bit awkward there. I think all surround you and you know, surrounding the circle um, that all through the game as you go, should like you go through the game. You know, sometimes you know, sometimes the backtracking can be a bit long um, and or annoying. But you know, in some of the, you know, some of the uh, monster designs could have been a bit more creative, I think, because a lot of the monsters kind of attack you in similar in similar ways. And having so many sound effects taken directly from Actorizer and, and whatnot, uh, you know, kind of feels like the fact that they kind of maybe rushed the game a little bit more compared to the development cycle of that the, 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 uh, of that game this time that usually took. Um, but all those you know, but all those minor flaws I touched upon don't really distract like the overall brilliance of the game. You know, like in a rating of one to five, you know, I you you I. You know, I would give the game a thought for. Um, if you're a fan of action RPGs, if you're a fan of the Zelda games, if you're a fan of hack and slash games, uh, I, I, I highly recommend playing this game out and checking it out for at least through emulation. Oh, yeah. Um, I haven't played this game in a long time. I was actually into another game. I won't say what now because I would love to cover it later. But, um, anyway, anyway, uh, yeah, 
I had gotten to conversation with Greg after, you know, several mutual friends, Willie and Aaron, kind of asked me if I would be interested on Greg's behalf, and we kind of got together from there. But uh, I um I actually popped this game in, and I haven't played this game in a long time. And I kind of got myself lost in it. I kind of got a little obsessed in it. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I played it forever, nonstop. And um, there were there were places that I had forgotten and people to talk to. And, and I did find myself getting lost a couple of times. But this game is just... I... I, I the faults are kind of nitpicky, but at the same time, there is a place where the enemies, you have to pinpoint attack them with the magic or the sword. There is no kind of grazing them. But at the same time, your hit your personal hit detection is... I noticed there are some of the projectile, like in the first boss, some of the projectile attacks... Um, you, you were like, oh, that, sh that totally should have missed me. There is no way that touched me. And, you know, it can kill you and cost you. And the ball thing, it is kind of, it does take some getting used to on some of the, uh, the earlier magic attacks. Later on, not so much. Uh, you can kind of see where they were going with it. The backtracking is pretty annoying at times. But they do really make up with it with strategically placed points where you can be like, do you want to go back to town or do you want to stay here? And you can do that. And then you, there are certain places in town that um, there are like three points that you can go to that will place you in certain very strategic parts of the dungeon. The dungeons themselves are at first, they're kind of they seem kind of sprawling. But as you unlock paths and that kind of thing, it doesn't seem quite that much of a chore to backtrack. And the bosses themselves, they can be difficult, but if you learn their patterns and learn how to attack them and how to go through with it, you can pretty much make up for it. I don't know. It's not frustrating so much as it's a learning experience. Right. And then the magic itself does depend on your gem collecting. You don't actually spend the gems on items so much as you have to have them to cast certain magic. If you die, you lose your gems. So please save often. You can go back <laughs> and you can load, you can reload and have your thousand plus gems rather than, oh my gosh, I just died. I cannot believe I just did that. <laughs> and lose all of your gems to something that seems cheap. Right. So anyway... Um, other than that, man, this gameplay is great. The music will be etched into your brain. You will probably be looking for the soundtrack <laughs> it's on, on like YouTube and that kind of thing just for the music. The gameplay is, is, is very good. I, uh, I loved it. And the character itself is, the story is very well fleshed out. You could tell how imaginate, how how well they they really thought this thing out. Yes, indeed. So um yeah. The whole story is just fan. I'm not going to spoil a bit of it for you. Mm. But 
it's a it's very well done and you're going to want to see what happens next you're going to want to see the next dungeon and the next town um it, it never feels like oh i can do without this i can do without that no it does really make you want to explore every nook and cranny for special items for you know special conversations for uh special magic and that kind of thing so yeah, this game is very well done, and I love playing it. Okay, um, so that's going to wrap up this first podcast episode on Soul Blazer. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, but you definitely want to get your feedback and comments, both upon this game and also upon the podcast. Um, and if you have any future games that you'd like to see covered by playing the podcast, um, you can find us in most of the usual places. Uh, there is a Facebook page dedicated to, dedicated to the podcast, which is called the Super NES Podcast. The main site is on Podomatic, which is which can be found at supernes.podomatic.com. You can also find us um, on iTunes, uh, on Stitcher, and this podcast is also a proud member um, to the Retro Junkies uh, Network. Um, and you can also find me on you, know, you can also find me uh, like an Atari age if you want to reach me directly and chat if somebody wants to get feedback directly to you. Uh, how can I do so? Uh, they can also find me on the Retro Junkies. Pretty much, that's pretty much it. Um, I'm also Chad with Call, so you can kind of look me up if you want to. It's all good. I don't mind talking to you. Okay. Um, and for our next game, uh, we have a third podcast. Uh, we have a special treat. The next game we're going to be covering is Knights of the Round, which is a port of a Capcom, uh, a Capcom arcade game, a beat-em-up game uh, played in the early 90s. Um, and because he's such a huge fan of the game, uh, Willie from the Nuclear Vision Podcast is going to be joining us here on this podcast to, to talk about the game um, and why he loves it so much. So it's going to be a real honor to have him here on the podcast. He's going to help definitely, definitely help air of credibility and seniority to this a uh, uh, brand new podcast. So, Willie is very cool. So very much looking forward to that. Yes, yes, definitely. It's going to be a great podcast having him on here talking about the game. Have you played this one yet, Chad? I have. I actually borrowed it as a kid, and there was a time when I had borrowed it from, and I had to give it back, and then we moved. <laughs> And I didn't know what it was called. There was a time when I was really looking for this game. <laughs> and I eventually found it much later. And it is a very good game. Yes. So it's going to be a lot of fun a lot of fun talking about that game next week. If you have any feedback, like on this game or Nights of the Round or anything else in general, uh, please do let us know. You know, we would love to feature uh, like some more feedback and comments like all you guys like this podcast. Um Thank you very much for listening to listening to the podcast. Um, if you'd be kind enough to give some reviews, comments, uh, suggestions, whatever. Chad and I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to, to listen to this podcast. And we hope you get out there and play the game of Soul Blazer if you've not already previously played it. So I uh, hope you have fun with the game and hope to talk to you guys soon. Uh, thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you guys. Y'all have a great night. Take care all. Nintendo controls 80% of the video market. But no matter how you play the game, or which game you play, things definitely have come a long way since Pac-Man. Now you're playing with power. Deep on power.